Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's a brand new year, and what better time to get going with that online store you've been thinking of? Those, I was there when Arsenal actually scored a goal t-shirts would fly off the shelves right now. And to get yourself up and running, you need Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way through to the did we hit a million order stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms, and sell more with less effort with thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Sign up for a $1 a month trial period at shopify.com slash arsblog, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash arsblog now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash arsblog. Hello and welcome to another Arsecast Extra, as always, with James from Gunnerblog. James, good morning to you. What is this 2024 rubbish, Andrew? I'm sick of it. Already. January the 8th. I've no time for this year. Roll on 2025, I say. Just the 358 days to go, or whatever it is. It seems like a lot of days, you know, Mm. when we're never going to score a goal again. Is that the amount of days until the end of the year or the amount of shots we've taken without <laughs> scoring in the last couple of home games. Oh, man. Man, man, man. Tricky, tricky one, isn't it? I, I feel really uh, frustrated today yes. about this. I share your frustration. I, really I, may, I, I will even I'll caveat this podcast by saying I feel so frustrated that I reserve the rights to divorce myself of some of these opinions uh, within a couple of weeks when I've calmed down. When I've had my... Warm winter training break in Dubai. Yeah. You know, where we go away and practice our podcasting. Um, <laughs> we're doing that, are we? Are yeah, you... in the sunny climes. All right. Perfect. Yeah, that's perfect. what we're doing. All right. Good. That's what everyone's doing this time of year. I think so. Um, I think so. But when I come back from that, I'll feel refreshed and the frustration will be gone, you know? Well, at least we can finish a podcast. That's true. That's true. We finish it in exemplary fashion every mm-hmm. week. We're consistent with our finishing. This is very, Bye-bye. very true. That's it. Yeah. I saw Tim just published a, an article on Arsblog News. It popped up on the Arsblog app notifications that I have. Mm. And the headline of the article is, Coming up clutch, Arsenal women need to find a way to convert threat into goals. And I thought to myself, the word women is a bit <laughs> redundant there. This is <laughs> it's catching. It is, as I said to I said that to Tim, and he said, "Ha ha! Arsenal have achieved true gender equality." Yeah, what a the what one a club. club mentality comes through strong. What a club we are, um, but not yeah. a club with FA Cup football for the rest of this season, which is annoying. It is annoying. How annoyed are you about that specifically? Quite annoyed, to be honest. <laughs> Quite yeah. annoyed. Yeah, because I got a text from my brother. And he said, mad game of football. And I just replied, ugh. 
which was kind of how I was feeling after this yesterday. I, you know, I've said this before. I know some people don't care too much for the FA Cup, but I love the FA Cup. I love the the history and the tradition of it. I love the fact that it's a trophy. We've won more times than anybody else, and I don't care what anybody says. It is a trophy worth winning. It absolutely is. And, you know, I was hoping we could go the distance or, you know, have a good cup run this time around because, um, you know, we can't turn our nose up at any kind of trophy or any kind of silverware. You just can't do that. If you're trying to instill this every game matters culture, you, know, you can't just say, well, it's only the FA Cup. Who gives a shit? We've got the FA, uh, the Premier League and the Champions League to contend with. But it's it doesn't have to be an either or thing, you know. And I am frustrated this morning and, and disappointed, to be honest, that we're out. Not least because, you know, I think we, this is what will make this podcast perhaps interesting or indeed infuriating to, to people listening because there are things wrong. I mean, there's one very, very, very fundamental thing wrong with this team at this moment in time. And that's obvious. Playing I, yeah, that? playing in white, exactly. But, you know, I think I think that's obvious to everybody. But it's really difficult to try and talk about some of the things that are good. Is it good? Mm. Are we good? Can you be good if you don't score goals? I don't know. I'm like in that space this morning where, like, don't get me wrong. I'd rather be a team that creates a lot of chances and doesn't finish them than being a team that just can't create shit, you know? But it's a really worrying trend at this moment in time that we just we can't score goals, and that is that is the big problem. I do think there are aspects of our game that are positive, which is something perhaps nobody wants to hear on a morning when you go out of the FA Cup, and I probably don't want to hear it, but I don't think you can ignore that. And I don't know if that makes the frustration more uh, copable with or even more frustrating, you know? Where do you yeah. stand on that, like? I think it's really bad to go out of the FA Cup. I think this team needs to win something sooner or later. It's funny, I was just talking to Adrian Clark and he made the point that I hadn't quite realised myself. Arteta may have won the FA Cup in 2020, Mm. but I don't think a single player who started that game for Arsenal is still with the club. Kieran Tierney is the only one who's still under contract, albeit out on loan. In the Scotland of Spain, yeah. Yeah, Martinez, Holding, Louise, Tierney, Bellerin, Ceballos, Shaka, Maitland-Niles, Pepe, Lacazette, Albemia. How the fuck did we win an FA Cup with someone? God players? only knows. But, <laughs> you know, I think a few of the younger players were on the bench, likes of Reese Nelson, um, Bukayo, Saka. Yeah. Eddie Nketiah came on. But, yeah, I mean, this group, you know, what we think of as this team has not won anything yet. And the FA Cup always provides a, a pretty expedient route to potentially doing that. And that's one of our options for silverware gone now. So yeah, yeah I'm, I'm, I'm going to be out of the cut. Yeah. Because there is a, there is a, there is a thing that winning a trophy can instill belief in a team. And we talked about this a lot during the years when we didn't win anything, you know, the, the drought mm-hmm. uh, and you're, you've got a young team and you think, well, 
would it have been different if we'd won the league in 2008? Would it have even been different if we'd won the, the Carling Cup in 2011? You know, that Birmingham final. You know, what would have happened then if we'd won a trophy? And, you know, winning silverware makes you believe you can win more silverware. And, and perhaps the FA Cup in 2014 is, is evidence of that to an extent where we hadn't won anything for years. We win the FA Cup in successive seasons, then win it the season after that again against Chelsea. That belief that it instills in your in your players is you know, is important. Um, Maybe it helps you take a step towards winning some of the bigger things. Uh, Another thing that's just occurred to me about the FA Cup is that we did win it in 2020, but we have not done well in it ever since. Pretty badly. Yeah. Third round, fourth round, third round. Forest away, we went out. Then in the fourth round at City, third round again here. Um, Yeah, again, I mean, you know, since winning that FA Cup, uh, Arteta's record in sort of knockout football is, is not particularly strong. Um, yeah, and as for the game itself, uh, you're right. Like there is a big elephant in the room, right? Which is a kind of striker situation and, you know, taking the chances. And there are things that are positive about our performance and our progression uh, as a team. But how much do they matter? Yeah. <laughs> you know, as compared with putting the ball in the net. I mean, that is the aim of the game, to kick the ball through the posts, under the bar, into the goal. If you don't do that, I'm afraid everything else is secondary. 100%. And we'll get to that, I'm sure. So let's get into the game a little bit. What did you make of the starting lineup? There are obviously some changes to it. Reese Nelson being handed a start on the left, which I have to say was a bit of a surprise to me. Um, the the striker decision, the upfront decision was interesting, particularly before the game when we had news that Gabriel Jesus was missing out with a, a knee injury at this moment described as minor, but one which I have to say worries me a little bit, to be honest, because uh, just because, you know, this is Arsenal. We've all been there, done that. Um, so he went with Kai Havertz brought Aaron Ramsdale back in, started Jorginho in midfield. You know, he did, for all the talk of him not rotating, he did change things up a little bit. And I expected him to go strong in this game because you're playing Liverpool and because I think he he wanted to go through and take this game seriously and win this competition. Uh, And I, I think the, generally speaking, the selection decisions and, and the team selection itself were good and positive and led to what was beyond that, you know, small trifling matter of kicking the ball between the post and under the bar and into the net. You know, it it was, I think, a decent performance until just that last action, that last pass, that last shot. You know, uh, there was there was enough to be encouraged about. Reminded me a bit of the Brighton game where we played so well against Brighton but just couldn't score in that first half. The flip side, of course, is that, you know, this time around we couldn't find the goals in the second half and Liverpool not quite sucker punched us, but but certainly played a lot better than they did in the first half and, and got the goals that won them the game. Yeah, it was a brilliant start, I thought. And Jurgen Klopp afterwards admitted he was a bit surprised by some of what Arsenal were doing. There was a, a change in how we played. Um, it seemed to me that Jorginho and Rice were very much a pair in the midfield and Kibior was you know, a little bit more of a conventional left back uh, yeah. on that side. And, you know, it's almost like, a, I think Klopp called it a 4-2-2-2, but Havertz and Odegaard were kind of dropping in as 
twin number 10s and Saka and Nelson, as it turned out, you know, staying very high and offering the threat there. Uh, and it worked really effectively. I, I thought Arsenal were blisteringly good in that opening 12 minutes or so and probably should have had at least a goal, probably maybe even two goals. And, and that strikes me as one of the big differences, actually, between this team and last season's team. I think last season, you know, particularly in the first half of the campaign, we were quite good at getting the early goals that sort of change the dynamic of matches. You know, it's all very well saying Liverpool really came back into it in the second half and, you know, they had, they had chances. But the game might have been over. Yeah. by half-time. Perhaps should have been over by half-time. Well, yeah, I think so. If not over, we should have been in a commanding position yeah, going into the break. it should be a very different game, let's e put it like exactly. that. Exactly. You know, we should have been at least a goal, maybe two goals up, and I don't think that would have been unfair based on the um, the way the game went and the chances that were created by both sides. I know they cracked the bar late on, but that was really, I think maybe their first shot or second shot only in the game. Arsenal were dominant and very much in the ascendancy, but just could not get the ball into the back of the net. I mean, there were chances. There was that first early one for Reese Nelson. Have you yeah. watched it back? What do you think of of? Look, it's a I great know ball. it's really a really nice pass, brilliant pass from uh, from Ramsdale. I I thought he should have. I know it's difficult, but I thought he should have tried first time to go over the goalkeeper with the outside of his foot. Yeah, I, I think he should have hit it in some way, shape or form. I think lifting it seemed the obvious thing. Yeah. But I think actually, even if he just sort of put his foot through it, you know, you've got a chance there. I, I think going around the keeper made it more difficult, made the angle more acute. Um, and then shooting when he could have played a pass back. I don't think there's any way he's getting the ball into the net from there. No. But Saka is arriving now. You know, he could have played it back and Saka could have fucking whacked it down. Almost certainly. The Holloway Road somewhere. The stadium, yeah. Things are going. But yeah, that was a good chance very early on. Um, I, I, even a couple of minutes later, there was a moment where Odegaard was at the edge of the box and might have shot, yeah. but chose to pass instead. Uh, there was a corner, which I'm still not really entirely clear what happened. I don't think I ever saw a replay of it, but there was like a near post uh, flick maybe that, that was threatening. Um, yeah, that's right. Um, there was, hang on, let me, that came from, yeah, that was the eighth minute. That was the eighth minute, yeah. yeah. And then in the 11th minute was the one where Saka picked their pocket and uh, Nelson had a shot blocked, Odegaard hit the bar. I mean, that <sighs> corner was, was maybe the only near post corner that we have taken to good effect in about, a month. Saka took it. I'm just watching it again here. Saka took it, flicked on by Saliba, I think it is, and then Liverpool scramble it clear. Um, you know, so an effective, one effective set piece, and I'll come to set pieces in, in a little while. But there were other chances as well. There was the one where Odegaard hit the bar. Yeah. And that one I have a, you know, they're saying, oh, he's got to score, he should score from there, which is, look, you can say that, but there were a lot of players in front of him, so he had to lift the ball to get it into the net. You know, I had to get it above those players. Um, I think it's quite marginal, just a touch too high, which maybe just sums up, you know, where we are. It's it's a matter of a couple of inches here and there. That's the difference between getting a goal and, and not. Yeah, 
it can be. It can be. Um, it, listen, it's fine, fine margins. And But I, I, the, the tricky thing about this performance is that a lot of what Arsenal did was good. I mean, their, their work off the ball was outstanding, I thought. They were pressing Liverpool yeah. brilliantly, winning it high. You know, we speak about creating chances, but winning it high is one of the best ways you can create chances and often quite clear chances because you're taking sometimes six or seven opposition players out by yeah. doing that. Um, and we did that really well. Declan Rice was pressing. Reese Nelson was pressing. Uh, we just couldn't capitalise. We just couldn't capitalise. And, the, you know, there were a couple of moments where the ball came to habits in the penalty box and just seemed like there was that extra seconds hesitation. Almost felt like he couldn't get the ball out of his feet oh, at times. I, I had a look at his stats at half time because I was curious because I had this... In my head, I thought he played well. He ran the ran the channels mm. well. He, um, I thought he linked it up well. I had a look at the stats at halftime, and he uh, only fifty percent pass completion and twenty touches of the ball. Mm. But I'd say about fifteen of those touches were before he took shots. It just felt. <laughs> I mean, I know I'm being slightly facetious here, but there was one where he had the opportunity to hit it first time and took a couple of touches and it was it was blocked away and then there was another one where he took a touch took a touch and went wide and I think it ended up being a little bit uh easy or the angle was too wide for him to get a good shot on target it was an easy enough save for for Allison you know but those those touches that that lack of kind of if you want to call it killer instinct if you want to call it confidence whatever it might be to get yourself in those positions in the final third and just not produce the decisive moment, you know, sort of undoes the other good things or the other things that you're doing in the game that might be useful, you know? Yeah, he had another chance off a corner, didn't he? Um, oh, he should have scored there because that came after a really good shot from Ben White, which the keeper saved, and then the uh, the corner, he just flicked the header. Yeah, flicked the header the wide. Like. Yeah, I, I thought he did okay. I have to... I, I'll stick to that. Like, I, I thought he did pretty well. And we looked quite a coherent team with him up top. I we, still think yeah. it's probably his best position. I, I I do still believe that. But it is difficult to <laughs> kind of marry that with how um, hesitant he does appear in front of goal. Were you time. happy were you happy enough to see him in that position because he obviously yeah. had a decision to make. He could have played Eddie Nketiah, he could have played yeah. Leandro Trossard, he went with Kai Havertz. When the team was announced, were you happy enough to see him in that position? Because I, I have to say I was of the options that we had available to us. I was quite happy to see that because A Van Dyke wasn't there. I thought that we might get some some joy because he's 6 foot 4 in that centre forward position. So we might have had a bit of joy in the in the box, which we did with that header that he put wide where he should at the very least get it on target. So I was, you know, I was happy enough to see him up there at the start. Yeah, me too. And I think it was the first time he started there since the Community Shield. And as I say, I think for our structure, I think it was helpful. I am just sort of like, uh, genuinely, I'm sort of struggling to describe how unconvincing he looks when it comes to a shooting opportunity. If you think about the goals he scored for Arsenal as well, they have been like toe pokes or, 
you know, bunk, things he's bundled in. Maybe I'm being unfair, but that's sort of my impression. In terms of his ball striking, you know, his ability to get the ball out from under his feet and hit it. Arsene Wenger always just talk about players with a short backlift, you know, who are able to kind of get mm. shots away when it seems like it's not on. He's he's not doing that no. at the moment. And he that's- had he had seemed to have taken a little step forward in that regard with how there was a little more decisiveness with how he, he was hitting the ball. Mm-hmm. But he looks to have gone a little backwards in in that way. Like I think he's capable of striking a ball much more cleanly and with much more power than we've ever seen him do it for Arsenal, and certainly than than we saw him do yesterday. Yeah, um, there was one I remember in an away game. I don't know if it was at Villa Park or away. He sort of bent one round the far top corner, and I remember thinking, "I haven't seen you hit a ball like that yet mm. at Arsenal." But the fact I still remember it. Shows it's sort of the exception that proves the rule to an extent. And, and listen, we started talking about individuals and, and we should be clear because I know Kai gets a lot of stick. It's not just him. No. Right? This is this is a collective problem at the moment in front of God as well. 100%. So halftime, Arsenal have had a load of chances, not score goals. And you can't help but worry, can you? Because you're playing a team like Liverpool who I think we dominated is maybe going a little bit too far, but certainly had the better of in that first half. Mm. And the second half kicks off and it's different. You know, they, I think, made a a tactical change, but I'm not sure it was the tactical change as much as Liverpool playing with a bit more intent. Um, You know, they... You talk about a manager giving a team a rocket at halftime. I'm pretty sure that Liverpool Liverpool team got a rocket at halftime from Jurgen Klopp, and there were there were moments um, that we saw very early in that in that second half that they did not have in in the first half. Some shots, you know, Gomez had a shot. I think Nunez had a shot that went um, that went not far wide. It was a bit more end to end in the opening part of the of the second half. It was. You know, I think they were a bit more direct uh, in possession and they offered a threat in behind with the pace of Nunes and, and Diaz. Um, they were basically much better in the second half. And that's the thing, right? When you're playing a big team, a Man City or a Liverpool, you can't bank on them being below par for a full 90 minutes. You know, I, I think when you have the kind of period on top that Arsenal did in the first 20 minutes of this game then they they have to you have to capitalize yeah. you have to take advantage because they were they were going to they were always going to be better you know and so it proved so it proved but we did have a very good chance to go 1-0 up just before the hour mark a very clever free kick routine um Martin Odegaard played a pass to Kai Havertz, who timed his run very well. I think he stood the ball up pretty much perfectly, Mm. exactly where you want it to be. And I was thinking, here's a goal. And Gabriel didn't make contact. Saka then hooked the ball over the bar. I've watched this back countless times this morning, downloaded the game. I've watched it back. There's replays from in front of the goal. There's replays from behind the goal. And... I don't know. They're talking about maybe Gabriel got a a shout from from Saka, which maybe he did. But it's hard to see how you kind of... Oh, did he pull out? I don't know. I think Gabriel should head that. I think he should head that. Whatever the shout is behind him, you know, it's just there for him to to nod that ball home. 
No, I agree. I agree. That was another good opportunity. And sometimes, you know, we <laughs> lot of stats doing around about the shots that we do take, but another side to the story is is the shots or the efforts that we don't yeah. take, you know. Um, and that was a, a slightly curious one. But yeah, it was a more even second half, I think. And frankly, frankly, I always fancied Liverpool just because I think we'd let them off the hook. And whenever that happens in a game, yeah. you have that sort of creeping feeling of inevitability. No, I think that's true. I think that's true. We made a change just after the hour mark where... Gabriel Martinelli came on for Reese Nelson, had a couple of flashes early on where he went past Alexander-Arnold but couldn't get past Konate, which is sort of back to Anfield and what we did there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, Yeah, exactly that. I mean, it's that thing where Trent, you know, he's sensibly is right back, but he's, he's barely ever there. Konate is actually the problem. And mm, uh, But I'm, I'm looking at what we did after that and... Not much in the final 25 minutes, even half an hour of this game. We didn't do a great deal to threaten Liverpool. No. We sort of, did we run out of steam? How would you? Yeah, I think there was an element of that. You know, I think fatigue has been a factor in recent performances. Um, And while we looked fresher at the start of the game, I'm not sure you could say we looked particularly fresh after about 65 minutes. Um, I think the wind goes out of your sails a bit as well, you know, when you feel like things aren't going for you. Uh, And I think the substitutions Mm. are interesting. I mean, the timing of some of them, I thought, was telling. Um, Yeah. Am I right in saying that Eddie didn't get on? He did get on. He came on for Jorginho as soon as Liverpool scored. He came on for Jorginho. I thought so, right. Okay, someone corrected me on that. Then I realised that was wrong yeah um so he got on at 81 yeah smith row 88 trossard 88 i just thought those three subs coming as late as they did was quite uh interesting i agree because i think the the other side of that is what liverpool did with their subs yeah and i know we've maybe got a question maybe we'll we'll save it for the second half about the maybe the second two Liverpool subs who were young players. Bradley and Clark. Bradley and Whoever Clark. Whoever they may be. Connor Bradley, Northern Ireland International, 13 caps actually. So he is okay. relatively experienced. I think it's Bobby Clark. Um they were saying on BBC he's the 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 son of former Newcastle player Lee Clark. Oh wow. So there you go. Bit of family history there. Um but but I suppose there is a bravery to that. If you're away from home at Arsenal and you're you're throwing on two young players, I think those two subs were quite effective for Liverpool. I was looking at those going, hey, you know what? They've taken Jones and Elliot off, who are two relatively young players themselves, in fairness. It's not like he's taking off two senior, senior players and putting two kids on. Um, but I wondered if that might be a chance for us. You know, these two young guys who've come on don't have a huge amount of experience. And whether or not that is something that Mikel Arteta should have reacted to at that time, because it was 75 minutes when those players came on, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think there is something not just to the, the youth of those players, but the timing of the subs that Liverpool made, which helped them 
stay fresh and stay organized. And, you know, did Martinelli get a kick after those guys came on? Not really. Did Saka get a kick? Not really. After Liverpool scored, we didn't have a shot. You know, so the question of, of the timing of the subs, I think, is is really interesting when you compare what the two managers did. Yeah, I mean, the sort of lens you need to look at the whole game through, I suppose, is that absolutely nobody wanted a replay. Um, and actually, the Liverpool writer, James Pearce, who was sat next to me, when Klopp brought those two kids on, turned to me and said, well, he definitely doesn't want a replay, which uh, I think does a bit of disservice to those guys who, who came on, who actually did all right. Um, but yeah, I, I I was a bit bemused about the timing of the substitutions and I did think we started to look a bit flat in that second half. Yeah, particularly as like after those after those subs came, uh, came on, Liverpool had a little period where... They threatened us a lot. Yeah. There was a great save from Aaron Ramsdale to deny Luis Diaz. From the subsequent corner, Jota outjumped William Saliba. Yeah, it was a hell of a leap. Hell of a leap and a hell of a header. Comes back off the crossbar and Darwin Nunez whacks the ball high and wide. Thank you very much indeed. You know, previously, previously he had missed a really good chance to put Diaz one-on-one with Ramsdale played an awful pass. So there was a there was enough there, I think. There was enough going on for Arteta to have reacted to it with substitutions of his own rather than all of a sudden we're one nil down. What the hell do I do? I throw Eddie on. You know? I think that uh, yeah. I find that frustrating, to be honest. I find that aspect of of what we did to try and get ourselves back into the game and avoid a replay that we didn't want. I find that uh, as frustrating nearly as, as the result, to be honest. I think Arteta's tendency is that when he thinks the performance has been good, broadly, he tends to stick with it. Yeah. But I think that... In a game where you're allowed to make five changes, you're almost required to change more and change sooner. Yes. Just to kind of keep the intensity up, you know? And I think maybe that's something that we're not active enough doing. Mm. You know, I looked at the numbers actually in the week and, you know, I think we've used the joint fewest Premier League players and our subs uh, average the least minutes on the field in the Premier League. Well, there you go. Is it a wonder perhaps that we look a little jaded towards the end of games if fresh legs aren't coming on? Mm. One thing I would have done yesterday, and I know this um, maybe is sacrilegious to say it, but I would have taken Bakayo Saka off. I thought you were going to say I would have brought Cedric on. Um, <laughs> no, here, listen, I'm not a fucking complete lunatic. <laughs> Go on, you would have taken Saka off. I would have How taken come? Saka off because I just think, look, I understand why you keep him on because he is a player who is, he's probably our most productive player. Yeah. But I think there are games where you can see it's not happening for him. And I think maybe the last three or four weeks, it hasn't really been happening for him. I know he got that goal against Fulham, but beyond that, he doesn't look as sharp to me as his the best version of himself. And I think yesterday he was below par, and I don't think 
I just don't, I just don't think it's right to always keep him on when perhaps there are other changes that you could make. I don't know if he doesn't want to upset him or if he is just so confident in Saka's ability to get you something out of nothing. But I would have, I would have taken him off yesterday. I have to say. I think it must be the latter. I don't feel like someone who particularly worries about upsetting people. I think he probably just acknowledges that if someone is going to pull a rabbit out of a hat for you, you know, Saka might be number one on that list. Mm. Um, And maybe, you know, he's got that delivery from wide areas, which can be critically important in the final stages of games. But I won't disagree with you. I don't think it was happening for him in the second half particularly. Um, And yeah, nobody's above being brought off. Yeah. Uh, yeah, for sure. So let's talk about their goals. And I think the the two Liverpool goals are quite instructive when you compare and contrast them to our issues at this moment in time. Because set-piece delivery from Arsenal has not been good enough in the last few weeks. Not just in this game. I think there were poor corners. There were poor free kicks beyond the one I mentioned that, that, uh, that had that chance for Gabriel and the... And the a couple in the first half from Saka where the the one we talked about that skidded across, Saliba nodded it on, and then there was the Havertz one where he should have probably scored. But in general, our set-piece delivery has not been good enough, particularly from our left-hand side. Mm-hmm. Uh, Reese Nelson, I, I thought, was lively enough yesterday, but the set-piece deliveries were not good. Uh, Trossard came on, did another terrible corner. Thank you very much. And Liverpool got a goal from a very well-delivered free kick from Trent Alexander-Arnold. Um, it's a bit unfortunate, I think, for Kivior. Well, it always is an own mm. goal. You know, there's never any, inten- any intention there. But I'm just looking at a still of it now. It is a good ball into a difficult area, but it's also an area where there's kind of one Liverpool forward surrounded by probably... Was it one, two, three, four, five Arsenal players? And sort of three of them all seem to be going for the ball. Kivior, Gabriel, Ramsdale. Uh, mm, I think if Keeper comes, he's probably got to get there. You know, yeah, it's I one of those. So. I think so, for sure. And he doesn't. And, and, you know, I don't know if he would if Kivior hadn't got it, you know, but it, it's, it's not a good goal to concede from Arsenal's perspective. You know, they've got the numbers there. I think communication needs to be better. And yeah, so a very frustrating way to concede. Mm. Although, you know, enabled people up and down the country to make the joke about Arsenal have finally managed to put the ball into the <laughs> Thankfully, I missed that. Because, um, ah. I mean, I'm, it's a shame because that's really, really, really funny, isn't it? You yes, know? it is. So it's, and it's so very funny. original. Um, although I would say Liverpool's second goal well, you know, I thought it was really sort of probably an unfair reflection of the the game. Probably, uh, but but it, it well, that was quite instructive, wasn't it? In terms of what Arsenal are missing, I mean, it was a pretty emphatic finish. Well, that's it. You know, it's the difference. It's the the power. It's the precision. It's everything that our finishing has not been in the last few weeks. Like, there's no way Ramsdale can save that. Absolutely no way. I have to say, though, I was a little frustrated with the couple of free kicks that we had laid on. Yeah. Where I think he needed to deliver that ball much deeper into the Liverpool half. 
edge of the box minimum, you know, and he was aiming, I presume it's a tactic. I presume it's a a thing worked out with the set piece coach that they would aim it towards. uh, Maybe it was Saliba who was positioned out there to try and head it into the box. But I think the position of those two free kicks just inside our own half he has the ability to deliver that ball much, much deeper and much more directly into the Liverpool penalty area. And, and you know, obviously they broke from there and the finish is, is very good. But that was, well, look, I don't think that's why we lost this game. I think the game was already won for Liverpool at that point. But when you have a chance to get the ball, I know it's industrial and all the rest, but when you have the chance to get the ball into the fucking mixer in the last minute of the game, you have to do it. You have to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I completely agree. I thought he needed to get more distance on, the, particularly on that last one. Um, it almost seemed to sort of catch in the air. I don't know if he didn't quite strike it clean because obviously we mm. know distance is not usually a problem for him. Um, but yeah, they broke and got the second goal. Uh, they they kicked the ball uh, between the posts and under the bar and into Very the net. Very clever tactic. Into the net. What well, next? yeah, into the net. I mean, technically, it doesn't have to go into the net, Andrew. You know, thanks to goal line technology, mm. it just has to go over the line. Uh, I'll take that <laughs> at this point. Into the net looks nicer, but I'll take over the line at this point in time. I think we all would. I think we all would. So, 2-0. I think you're right to say it's not necessarily a fair reflection of the game, but it's probably a fair reflection of what's wrong with our game. Yeah, I mean, it, it, as we said at the top, the game is kicking the ball in the goal. <laughs> that is the game. There are some other rules and structures around it, but fundamentally, that's what those 22 people are trying to do. Mm. Um, so if you don't do that, and the opposition do, it's it's quite difficult to sort of argue with it, isn't it? It is. It is. And of course, the manager was asked about this afterwards and calls for a new striker or a new forward new striker i think more than new forward is tends to be the focus of of the questions that are asked of arteta which i think yeah. is is interesting because i you know i'd be just as inclined like i don't think anybody would turn down a new forward or a new striker right nobody would if it was the right player but nor would I turn down a, a new wide player as we had this discussion last week, you know, where your ideal January signing was someone like Pedro Neto and like, bring me the head of Pedro Neto, por favor. And the rest of him, please, uh, as well. We, we yeah. require the head. Of injuries. Hopefully yeah. that's not one. Yeah. We need his head attached to uh, his, Ideally, very, his very fast I mean, body. feet yeah. I'm most interested in, but I would like him intact. Yeah. You know, which is quite rare for Pedro Neto. Um, but um, yeah, but- I, I think I do wonder if maybe the nature of those questions was kind of narrowed by the Gabriel Jesus nugget of information. Yeah, maybe. Um, maybe. How but could- it's, it's been an ongoing thing, hasn't it? Gary Neville has been beating that drum and kind of mainstream coverage of Arsenal need a sent it forward. Ian Wright. We need a killer. Yes. Yeah. Um, and to and kill like- who, Ian? Uh, yeah, no, we do, uh, and I and I, I've sort of, I've kind of resisted it, but it's increasingly difficult to argue with it. I think. Can I ask you why you would resist it? Because I watched your video. Obviously, I watched your mm. uh, on the whistle, and I completely understand the point you're making about how these players are capable of doing better. And I think that 
fundamentally is the bottom line to our malaise. Like you can say, we need a striker. Yes, we do. But is that going to stop Saka missing chances, Martinelli missing chances, Jesus missing chances? Because it's not just the case that, well, you get a new striker and he gets all your chances and he scores all the goals. You know, that's sure. not how it works. Yeah. Right. So I do think there is something to solve internally that has to be maybe the primary focus of what we do because you can't continue to be this profligate in front of goal so many players at the same time just not finding their shooting boots right but when it's been i say this long right but it has been a feature of the last maybe four to five weeks where the chances are not being created the idea that something yeah or taken rather sorry yeah the idea that something new in the forward line is is to be resisted it be like you say it becomes a bit more difficult to to stand behind that yeah exactly i mean when i say resisted i just mean that in some ways i i felt that the sort of calls for a striker were sort of an oversimplification of things yeah yeah you know um and doubly or, or furthermore rather not particularly realistic as Arteta said himself after the game, not hugely realistic. But the more this happens, inevitably, the more you think, well, maybe it is that straightforward. You know, maybe maybe Arsenal do... Let me put it like this. Like, when we watched Arsenal last season, we knew we were very good, but we saw there was some aspects of our game missing. And we signed Declan Rice and suddenly all those areas that we were worried about, we felt much better about. And, and and watching Arsenal right now at this point in the season, I can't help but have a sort of similar feeling of, you know, if we really want to be the absolute elite, then maybe there is something missing there. Oh, well, listen, you know, at the end of last season and during the summer, I was, uh, maybe I'm alone, but I didn't really have too many worries about scoring goals. I didn't think we needed a massive investment in the forward line. Whereas I did think um, defensively, we needed to sort some things out, which we tried to do with, with jury and timber, right? Um, that was, that was an issue we needed to solve. Yeah. And where, Rice, of course. And obviously Declan Rice. And, you know, we spent money on, on Kai Havertz. Um, there's, you know, en- enough discussion about that, but I think, as this team and as this season has evolved, you can see that the next step is a striker. But, you know, it's very difficult to try and um, have that discussion right now when we're not scoring, when we've lost games in the Premier League, when we've gone out of the FA Cup. I think people are much more willing to compromise their standards for the desire to bring any striker in or anybody at all who could help our forward line versus what we actually need. And what we actually need is, you know, to find somehow a player who is going to get us 20, 25 goals a season on a consistent basis, which doesn't mean that the likes of Saka and Odegaard and Martinelli and... Even Havertz, if he's playing in that left eight position, 
couldn't and shouldn't chip in with a substantial am- amount of goals. But it is it is a, a really difficult one in January, isn't it? It's just basically impossible in the circumstances that Arsenal find themselves in now financially, plus January, to make the signing that that would actually make a significant difference. And look, it's easy to throw out lines like, well, anybody's better than Eddie and Ketty or whatever. But like, that's not, that's not it either. You have to make this, if you're going to make that investment in that player, in that position, you have to, as much as possible, make sure you're bringing in the right player and not just any player because there is a lot of external noise about what the what the team needs which isn't to say that anyone is disagreeing with the contention that the team needs something else up front yeah I, well i couldn't agree more i mean and and to be fair that sort of long-term thinking and careful planning uh is what has brought about arsenal's revival of sorts you know um got us to this point should we say mm. um i think it's concurrently true that Arsenal's existing forwards are capable of finishing more of these chances that we would benefit from signing a truly elite goal scorer. I mean, talk about a no-brainer. Yeah. And also that it's probably pretty unlikely to happen this month. Yeah. I think all those things are true at the same time. Um I mean, Arteta's comments afterwards, he was saying, uh, let me see if I can just get them up here. I had them there a second ago. Uh, one thing is what we need. One thing is what we can do as well. And what we need to do now is stay behind those players to give them support, blah, blah, blah. They've done yeah. it before. We're not going to reinvent the wheel. Like, I don't think you need a PhD in reading between the lines to understand that basically Mikel Arteta is telling people, well, look, I know we need a striker, but we can't do it in January. Maybe not for the the lack of will, but for all the other circumstances that we've talked about, financial, the market itself, no top striker is available in January. I think it's as simple as that. I think it probably is. And maybe the funds aren't there to, uh, you know, acquire a player of that calibre either. Um, I did think there was something interesting from his press conference on Friday talking about the finishing mm. and I uh, clang classic journalist thing to say but I, I actually asked him a question about last season's goal scoring they cut you and off by the way did they they did we were I was watching the press conference and it said um no last Thought one before police. last one before the 1030 uh embargo James and you just started talking and then they cut you off so I had oh, to wait. That was all the best stuff. Yeah, that's, be it was actually, yeah. Um, <laughs> but I, I asked him about the, you know, the drop-off in productivity from some of those attacking players that we mentioned. Martinelli is the one who always gets cited, but, you know, Odegaard, Jesus. And Arteta said this, he said, "What? well, I think what they did last year is exceptional. And we knew that to maintain those numbers was going to be extremely difficult because it was a one-off. And not a one-off for us, a one-off in the league. So we knew that we needed other resources and other kinds of goals to maintain the levels that we want. Mm. Now, uh, my question is, if we knew that in the summer, did we do enough? I think that's a great question. 
I really yeah. do. And I had this discussion with Lewis on the, the preview podcast. And I think you have to also go back to some of the other stuff he said in that press conference about the unpredictability that he was looking for mm. from his side, which they haven't had because of the absence of Jurian Timber and Thomas Partey. And I think that the two things are quite connected, you know? Yeah. Like you could say, well, if you thought the uh, attacking output was a one-off or hard to replicate, why didn't you buy another attacker or another striker or another forward, whatever it might be? And I think that's a very fair question. But I also think we have been denied a certain amount of um, – tactical flexibility because we haven't had Partey all season and because we haven't had Jury and Timber all season. I know that every team has to deal with injuries and I'm not making excuses, but I think if everybody listening to this could envisage, you know, the last six weeks with, let's say, Timber available at either right back or left back, midfield trio that you're fielding of, of Partey, Rice, and Odegaard, for example. You've you've got more opportunities to play. Havertz a bit further forward. It it allows you maybe then to play Jesus as one of the wide players, you know, to take some of the burden off Saka and Martinelli. I think there is a domino effect to what those injuries did to the team and what the plans were in summer. So that that's, you know, how I understand what we tried to do to um, to deal with the fact that that maybe the extent to which those guys were productive was not quite replicable. I don't think he expected Martinelli to only score two goals in this no. period of the season as well. You know, there are certain there are other aspects, but I do think those two things are connected. I, I think that's fair. You know, it's quite mad, isn't it, that a lot of people probably on paper, might say that Arsenal's best midfield three is, is Partey, Rice and Odegaard. I don't think they've played a game together in the Premier League as no, midfielders. No, as midfielders, no. Um, which, you know, is quite mad. But I, yeah, I, I, I take that point. And it was interesting, yesterday we did actually change up the way we played and we were a bit more unpredictable. Mm. And it very nearly benefited us. You know, as I said, we might have been really in control of the game by half time had we had our shooting boots on. I suppose I, 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 yeah, my question more refers to those shooting boots specifically. And I also wonder, like, it's interesting for us as fans, we, we saw a great season last year in terms of productivity from Odegaard and, and Martinelli and, you know, Granite Xhaka and Bukayo Saka and others. And, um, I think we, I think there's a tendency in football, particularly for supporters of a club, to think like, well, once a player pushes through and reaches a certain level of performance, that that will just be maintained. You know, yeah. I'll just get better now from there. But I think careers aren't always as linear as that. Funny, we were talking about this with William Saliba a few weeks ago, but, you know, and maybe uh, this kind of slight regression for some of those attacking players, maybe was made more inevitable than certainly certainly than I envisaged. I I, I think that's a, a great point. I think young players, which Martinelli and Saka really are, you know, they're only twenty two still. They take a step forward, 
and then they plateau for a little bit and then they take another step forward or maybe even regress a tiny bit, you know, in terms of, um, in terms of their numbers and then they go again. You know, if they've got that talent to, to keep kicking on, uh, you know, but it's not unusual for a young player to kind of hit a plateau or hit a little bit of a wall where things that were easy for them when they broke through first or, or you know, when they had a great season. Like, I mean, there's just the, the minuscule fine margins of stuff as well. You know, this time last season, Saka and Martinelli, the chances that they were taking, they were just putting them away. They weren't thinking. There was no pressure. I thought there was an interesting question in the, the press conference. I think it was from from Sam Dean, um, where he asked Arteta if the, the weight of, you know, this goal scoring thing might be an issue for the players now, you know? Uh, yeah. sort of and said, Arteta basically conceded, yeah, yeah, I think. You know? I think it probably is at this point in time. Um, yeah, I'm, I have to be honest, I'm fascinated by finishing, you know, by what is successful and what is not and how important it is to be kind of instinctive in those moments and, um, you know, the vagaries of form and when things are happening for you and when they're not. It's kind of a, a, an inexact science. I've mm. talked a bit about confidence on Friday as well and said, you know, there's no test we can do for it. We yeah. can't, you know, it's not something we can measure, but it's something we can observe and feel and try to maintain. But, you know, it's not something that's measurable like, like other output. Um, yeah. And, and I find the kind of discourse around finishing really interesting because we live in a sort of uh, a very analytics um, led world of you know or at least analytics are a big part of the football conversation and football discourse and I sometimes feel like in that world finishing is just sort of seen as random you know it's like well if you get enough chances some go in some don't but I feel like there's got to be more to it than that but there's skill right of you know, course composure technique talent that they matter they do matter in that maybe they matter most of all in those moments. Well, I mean, I think as well, you have to, you really have to understand what the difference is at the very top, top level of the game. Yeah. You know, where players who have scored goals their entire careers, you know, come to the Premier League or come to this level of football and look just ordinary. You know, how many goals did Shamak score on his way uh, to Arsenal? Like, mm loads but then you get to this level and it's more difficult and you can't you just can't replicate what you did at a slightly lower level of football you know absolutely and then at the other end of the scale people you know like a Mo Salah or Haaland or even I'd say it, Harry Kane you know that's not luck right you can't do it no. that consistently without having a really good sort of basis and foundation I was thinking it's interesting you know a lot of the discourse says well if you look at the XG, you know, it'll work itself out over time. And I think if you're like a mid-table Premier League team, that's sort of fine. You know, if you're Brighton or whoever it might be, you know, you might be going through a bad patch and say, yeah, but look at the underlying metrics, you know, come the end of the season, we'll get our just desserts. The interesting thing about what Arsenal are trying to do and the, the kind of top, top elite end that we're competing at is a Two weeks of variance, two weeks of bad data or bad luck, or whatever you want to call it, can completely 
ruin your season. <laughs> yeah, well, it can derail it, certainly. You can get yeah. yourself back on track, and I think we're at a point in the season where it is capable of us, uh, capable uh, within our capabilities, I should say, of us getting it back on track. But yeah, yeah it yeah, can yeah. have but, a very damaging like, effect. It, it can. I mean, we're talking about a fortnight, essentially, where Arsenal's ability to score goals has deserted them. And it's put us out of one competition and cost us six points in another. And could those six points be the difference come the end of the season? Yeah. Very, very, very Probably. Possibly. Probably. You know, but but it is... But how mad is that? Like... I know, I know. It's just... This is... These are the fine margins that we always talk about. Like, you go to Aston Villa. Should Arsenal have lost to Aston Villa? No. But we didn't take our chances. Liverpool game is, you know... Its own thing, I think. Um, West Ham game, should we have lost that game? No. We had the chances. The Fulham game and the Fulham performance, I think you have to, even on the back of this particular game, put that into its own little category as an aberration, you know, an anomaly based on everything that we've seen this season. We haven't played that badly in a long time. But then yesterday, again, play pretty well, all things considered, until... The thing that really matters, which is, of course, kicking the ball between the posts, under the bar, and over the line, not necessarily into the back of the net, because yeah. it just needs to I, go over the line. Over the line. And, and I feel like the finer the margins get, which is the case at the sort of the very top end when you're trying to be the best, the more value almost is in those players who, you know, are just able to defy uh, the averages and overperform and finish in situations where you don't expect or find goals where you don't expect. Mm -hmm. um, and, 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 you know, in, increasingly that looks like it, it may be a, a missing piece in this Arsenal jigsaw, but yeah, it's, it's been a really frustrating period and I, I, I'm sort of glad of the break really. I think, yeah, I think I need it. <laughs> I think they need it. I think, you know, if it is becoming a psychological problem, this affords them an opportunity for some sort of reset. Agree. Agree. I think it's come at, a, at just the right time. I think even if we'd gone through yesterday, I think the break would have come at the right time as well. So let's hope they can soak up some of that sun and vitamin D. Maybe that's what we're missing. Vitamin D. Uh, That's the secret ingredient. D for deadly in front of goal. Um, all right. Well, look, let's leave it there for now because we do have more questions. So we'll do those. We'll take a little break here. Come back with your questions and more in part two right after this. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's a brand new year, and what better time to get going with that online store you've been thinking of? Those I was there when Arsenal actually scored a goal t-shirts would fly off the shelves right now. And to get yourself up and running, you need Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way through to the did we hit a million order stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms and sell more with less effort with thanks to Shopify magic, your AI powered all star. Sign up for a $1 a month trial period at shopify.com slash arsblog, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash arsblog now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash arsblog. Welcome back to the Arscast Extra. This is part two of the show where we answer questions that you send to us on Twitter at GunnarBlog and at Arsblog, also on the Arsblog Discord chat server, which you get access to if you're an Arsblog member on Patreon. I will allow you, allow you, grant you, no, you can go first. That's what I'm trying Thanks, to say. Man. Sorry. Um, we had a couple of questions that just made me laugh. So Emperor Bumblewank said, <laughs> uh, I'll never get tired of that name. He said, the debate <laughs> is often how much would an ordinary bloke score up front for City all season? And he said, is it worth us giving that a go until May? <laughs> and then Tempo Physiotherapy said, how excited are you to watch the inside training videos from Dubai with all the players smashing top bin shots from 25 yards? <laughs> I like this one on the Discord from uh, DJ Nolan, who said, badly morning, gents. If you ever put in front of a firing squad, how much would you like it to be the current Arsenal team holding the guns? <laughs> yeah, that'd be ideal. Um, well, let's do this question. Okay. We had various questions along this sort of theme. So Guna Oxen on Twitter said, are you concerned by Arteta's reluctance to use upcoming talents like Nwaneri? Do we risk a reputation of not giving our own talent a pathway to the first team? <sighs> He's 16. Mm -hmm. You know, we talked about the Liverpool guys coming on yesterday but they're 18 and 20 both of them Bradley and Clark it's a big difference at this level a couple of years am I concerned about it I'm I'm slightly I'm not really concerned about that because I think if maybe we had uh, a more favorable draw in the third round of the FA Cup if you're playing a lower league team I think it's much easier to give minutes to players who are trying to make their breakthrough. Um, I think there's probably a little bit of a gap in terms of age between some of the best young talents at the club and, and where they're actually really ready for first-team football. Like, as I said, one area is only 16, you know? Um, I know the old, uh, if you're old enough, you're good enough kind of thing comes into play for people, but eh, that gives you pause for thought. I may be a little more concerned about someone like Smith Rowe, you know, um, 
who is an academy graduate who has done uh, done it for us on the pitch and who can't get on the pitch. That comes back into my thinking about you know the timing of substitutes and how you might change a game before trying to react to going uh, a goal down. I mean, what do you think? I mean, are is there anyone really, really, really pushing hard for a place in the first team from the academy? You know, it is a yeah. big step up. Um, it really is. It is. I think the draw's been unhelpful, uh, obviously, getting Liverpool... In the FA Cup, in the Carabao Cup as well, we had a Premier League team away from home mm. in West Ham. I'm not saying... And we did you know, start a kid, a, a young player in that game. Charles Sago Jr. started that game, which we won. Yeah, good shout, actually. Um, you know, and had we had a home tie against someone from League One, maybe we would have seen a few more. Mm. But that isn't what happened. And obviously we went out, which then restricted the chance of us giving more opportunities in the domestic cups. I mean, the domestic cups are over. For Arsenal, so if you're a young player in the squad, I, I mean, I'd imagine one of the jobs of January might be to find some loans for some of these guys. Um, but I also think there's kind of a, I don't want to say I'm lost generation, but I think there is a gap, like you say, you know, Nwaneri, uh Lewis Skelly, people are really excited about these players, but they're 16, you know, going on 17. Where are the sort of 18, 19, 20-year-olds? Well, Charlie Patino is on loan at Swansea. Yeah. That's... Which, is be- which is far better for his development, I think. Yeah. Than being on the fringes at Arsenal. But I don't think we're sort of well-stocked with... I don't think we've got half a dozen of those guys, to be honest with you. No, I agree. There is. Um, there aren't... You know, if there were like... If there were exceptional talents coming through at youth level that we were not using because just for no good reason, I'd be a lot more worried. But like I'm looking at the Academy page on, on arsenal.com. Like Gruel Walters was on the bench yesterday. Mm-hmm. Um, who else was on there? Was Sousa, Lino Sousa on the bench yeah, as well? Was. So he was on the bench. So like they're, they're beginning to in part because of injuries and absences, beginning to feature in the first-team squad, a couple of these guys. But when you look at that page, who's there? Who's there yeah. that's really going to make any kind of difference right now? And there is a there is a gap between that current generation and Lewis Skelly, Nguaneri, you know, who are the next big hopes. So maybe the bigger question is, why does that gap exist at, at academy level? And are we maybe doing enough to... to nurture the talents uh, to make them ready I don't know yeah and I think that is a talking point definitely um, yeah, it's interesting obviously there's debate about this now because I think partly because Klopp brought on a couple of younger players yesterday and Arteta didn't um, but it is something that a few people within the game have mentioned to me you know is the pathway there at Arsenal in the way it is at other clubs is there a gap in terms of producing players, you know, are they producing them at the same rate they were, you know, a decade ago? Um, and, and yeah, I think I think that's sort of an interesting point for discussion. I do wonder as well about the impact of something like Brexit and the visa rules on youth development. You know, for a long time, the Arsenal Academy was very proud of sort of collecting talented youngsters from all over the continent and yeah. turning them into our own players. That's much more difficult to do that these days and it's going to happen a lot less 
So doesn't that apply to that uh, kid from Ajax that we're after, for example, where he he couldn't come in until the summer because of um, his inability to get a work permit because of his age? I believe that's the case, but I, I'm uh, unless the rules have changed, which they may have done. But I, I believe he can't until he's eighteen. Um, so yeah, it, I think it's an interesting talking point. I mean, obviously, we had a sort of golden generation, right? You know, those mm. few years from. Eddie and Ketia down to probably Bukai Saka, um, you know, encompassing the likes of Reese Nelson, uh, Ainsley Maitland-Niles, Joe Willock, uh, Emil Smith Rowe, who obviously we've spoken about. Um, but but what is the what is the context of their breakthrough? The context of their breakthrough is that we the as worst a club Arsenal side for thirty years exactly. You know, yeah. so there is there is a there are two sides to this particular coin. Yeah. But do I think we've got a batch of players like that between the ages of sort of 17 and 20 just waiting for their chance? No. No. I don't think we that. don't have that. I mean, but that's a that's more of a question for the academy than perhaps the first team manager, to. you know? Yeah. I mean, I mentioned Smith Rowe. We had a couple of questions about him. Um PRS Books says I've been closely watching the scant few minutes that Smith Rowe has had in the last few matches. He looks fit, alert, quick to get into the games whenever he comes on. Um, he offers something different in build-up play, and we know he's got a foot-like attraction engine. Does he? I don't think he does. But he can score goals. So why the hell isn't Arteta picking him? And Jimmy Tax says, does Arteta overvalue training performance and undervalue in-game performance? Is this the only rational explanation for the lack of Smith Rowe game time? Does he not train like a beast? I feel like he plays like a beast if given half a chance. After all, he did save Mikel's job. Hmm. There was another question as well, which um, says very simply, uh, AFCF, is Arteta dis disrespecting players like Smith Rowe when he brings them on so late to try and win the game? Could apply to Trossard as well, but the Smith Rowe one I'm more interested in. I don't think it's disrespectful. I do think that his use of Smith Rowe, or rather lack of use of him, is a little odd. I do think that. I'll tell you what's odd about it that they were so adamant last summer that they didn't want to sell him. He reiterated that. Yeah. In the pregame press conference. Friday, well. he was yeah. emphatic. It was never part of our plan. But everything, it's one of those things where there's like a disparity between words and actions, you know? Yeah. Because everything about the way Smith Rowe is being used makes me think, well, this guy hasn't got much future here. I, I'm told he's fully fit. I'm told he's fully fit and completely available for selection, feels ready to play, and he's not being picked for mm. tactical reasons, you know? It's a coaching decision. Um, I'm sure it's frustrating, and it's it's fairly frustrating for me. <laughs> like, I would like to see more of it. Me too. Me too. I know we had a discussion about him the other week, and, and I was a bit more positive about yeah. what he might bring to the team than you, but I think maybe you're your viewpoint was more about not necessarily his talent or his ability as a footballer, but, but the context in which he is um, in the, the context in which he's being um, used in this Arsenal squad, which is not very much. And I think I was looking at the West Ham game, if I remember correctly thinking, okay, 
Havertz was suspended for that game. So can you bring Smith-Rowe in there? Can you give him a chance? Could giving Smith-Rowe a chance in that game have, have sort of reignited his season and then give you another option? But I don't see the point in bringing him on after 88 minutes where he's got like two minutes and a couple of minutes of injury time to get into the game. I just don't really understand what you expect him or any player to do. It's kind of a Hail Mary, isn't it? It's not a tactical decision at that point to make a substitution. You're just rolling the dice and hoping that somebody can come up with something. Do you think it's disrespectful? I don't think it's disrespectful. I think it's just part of what happens in football. Yeah. You know, when you're desperate and you need a goal, what do you do? You throw on attacking players. But again, like if you're going to throw on Smith Rowe and Trossard, why don't you put them on at the same time as Inkedia after we've got a goal behind? Why not make the triple change then rather than just throw them on with a couple of minutes to go? Like, mm-hmm. I, I don't understand that part of, of the process. And I have to say, after what's happened in the last couple of weeks, I'm really down on Smith Rowe, not him personally, but down on the likelihood of him getting his the chances, prospects, yeah. his prospects. I'm really down on that. And I think it's a real shame. And look, I like Mikel Arteta a lot, but, and I, you know, I acknowledge that he knows more about the game and his players than I do, but I find it disappointing to see Smith Rowe frozen out in the way that he has been frozen out when maybe other players, as we have discussed in the past, get a little more leeway for, I don't want to say subpar performances, but like if their form goes off a cliff, there's a tendency to stick with them rather than change things. And I I wonder and worry about what that does to the environment, you know, within the squad and on the training ground. Yeah, and listen, if I'm advising Emil Smith-Rowe, I think I'm telling him he's got to go. I think I'm saying... You know, you, you can't you can't spend your career coming on for two minutes no. at the end of cup games. You know, and it doesn't bring me any joy to say that because he's an Arsenal Academy kid and, you know, someone who I really like as a player. But I don't know how you could give him any other advice. You'd have to say, look, listen, I know you love Arsenal. We've got to put your affection for the club aside. You've got to look after yourself. Yeah, you've got to play football. Yeah. Um what about this from Rocco74? Badly morning, gents. Would you take money for Eddie in January, even if no striker signing came in to replace him? Personally, I would, as with Kai and Trossard, we have enough cover there. Yes. Really? Yeah. What's your thinking there? My thinking is that he is going to go sooner or later. Yeah. My thinking is that if money comes in in January for Eddie, you could reinvest it. It doesn't, it probably makes it easier to add something to the squad Mm -hmm. in an attacking position. And I wonder how many times you are going to be offered money for Eddie anyway. I'm not saying he's not sellable, but I think you could play Havertz there. You can play Trossard there. You can play, Martinelli there, if you want. If you're now inclined to start Reese Nelson on the left in a big game, which, you know, this was against Liverpool. Maybe that's a show of faith in in Reese Nelson. I think it's one of those where if the money is on the table and it's good enough, I would take it. 
depending on like if it's deadline day, probably not. But if you've got a week to do something with the money that you're going to get for Eddie, then yes, absolutely. Right, yeah. You? I mean, I, well, the question was even if it meant not signing a, a striker. Uh, striker. See, I've got. I've, I, I've said forward. You've said forward. Yeah, yeah. See, I've moved the parameters a little bit. <sighs> Would I do it? I mean, look, so, I, I, these guys are going to go. I think. Like we're talking about Smith Rowe. We're talking about Eddie. We're talking about FFP quite a lot. Selling an academy players hugely beneficial from an accounting perspective. And I think in the next six months, I think those players might leave. Now, would I do it now? I think only if it facilitated something that improved us. You know, mm. that, it's it's a, sort of a boring answer, really. It's slightly dodging the question, but yeah, I don't see the point in letting a player go unless you know it's going to help you out and get somebody better. I mean, there is a case to be like, well, if you don't want to use Eddie, and you don't want to use a meal, sell them. Mm-hmm. Sell them now and buy someone you do want to use. That, I think, you know, that's a pretty strong case at this particular point in time. I think there are clubs in January who, you know, are, are in positions where they could be willing to push the boat out a little bit for players that they really desperately need. And those two maybe fit into the caliber of player that might be available on the market in January, mm. you know, but again, it's like, can you reinvest? Do you have time to reinvest? What are your, what are your plans? And who's out there that's available? Who's out there that's available? Exactly. Uh, I do think, you know, people often go, well, everyone's available for the right price. And I, I think that is an oversimplification. Like, yeah, sometimes they're not. <laughs> and sometimes they don't want to come. Like sometimes they are midway through a season. They want to see season, that season through. They've got personal lives. They've got families. You know, it's difficult. January is more difficult. That's, that is a fact, I think. So it all depends on that. I think if, if, if Arsenal suddenly think, you know what, we can get Victor Ozzyman by the end of Jan. All we need to do is <laughs> tell Eddie Nketiah and Emil Smith-Rowe. Then, of course, they should do that. But I don't think it'll that's, be that straightforward. That's, you know, that's not even realistic in fucking football manager or whatever, you know? Exactly. Yeah. And and I don't really see the point in Arsenal getting, like, an average forward. In. I, I just don't see how that helps us particularly. I agree with that. Like I said in the first half, like, this is a big decision. This is This is the sort of signing that can either take you up a level or uh, cause you to stagnate, maybe? Well, the, the thing is, the level is good. That's the thing. The level is good. We are a good team. We have good forwards. What we need to add is something right out of the, you know, top draw. Top, top class, as Harry Redknapp might have said. Mm. And um, anything less than that, you know, United needed a striker last January. It's it's not like their situation where they were like, well, we, we so badly need a focal point in number nine, we're going to go and loan Woot Beghorst. We're not in that situation. We're in a situation where, like, we need the cherry on the cake, you know? Mm. And it needs to be someone special, I'm afraid. 
in my opinion. Yeah. Well, we had a question from Tony Jeffries on Twitter, who's at Boz Jeffries. He says, is Vlavic good value at 70 million? No idea. <laughs> no idea. I mean, I have heard a lot less about him since he signed for Juve. Um, is he good value? I, I've got, I'd have to speak to people who watch him. I don't know. Seven goals this season in Serie A? Yeah. No. For me, no. Plus, he seems Not many like of our players have got seven goals, but yeah. Yeah, I know. He still seems like a right cunt as well. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know. They they really liked him at the time, didn't they? But mm. that's the mad thing about this sort of striker chase. I know we've signed Jesus in this period, but if you look at some of the names that we've been really hot on, um, you know, you look at where they are now and you're like, well, would that have been the right decision to push that button? The Vlavic one, for example, mm -hmm. Calvert-Lewin, we were genuinely really interested in at one point in time. Um, Alexander Isak, who's at Newcastle. Um, you know, these are some of the names and it's sort of, it's, it's interesting, isn't it, to imagine how things might have panned out if we'd got them. Would we still be in the same position we're in now where we're saying, yeah, but we need a Haaland or a Salah? It's just, it's such a, it's almost an absurd thing to say. Like those players are so special in Haaland, you know, City knew what they were getting, I think, because he was such a, uh, I tried to use this word in a relatively positive sense, freak in terms of his physicality, sure. his goal scoring. But Salah, there's no way when Liverpool bought Salah, they knew he was going to be a 30 or 40 goal a season guy. For five, six, seven seasons. Yeah. No way. No way at all. Yeah. Like the way in which his trajectory as a player changed after coming in from Roma, you know, I don't think anybody could have anticipated. Well, same as when we bought Thierry Henry. Yeah. You know, nobody, nobody could ever have envisaged, maybe Arsene Wenger did, but I doubt even Arsene Wenger envisaged quite what Thierry Henry was going to become. He was being brought in to replace an Elke, if people remember. And it was like, well, why are you signing a fucking winger from, well, a winger, sometimes a wing back for Juventus who scored three goals last season or whatever it was, you know? And sometimes the, the, the cocktail of ingredients at a club, player arrives at the right time with the right manager, with the right support around him, with the right structures and all the rest. And then they, they, they develop into something amazing, which is what, what happened with Sally, you know? Mm. So there is an, an element of, chance to an extent um educated guessing i suppose you would say um whether that's scouts doing their homework and and all the rest but it is easier said than done isn't it for sure for sure and we're, you know that's why we have such fun doing all the saying yeah um, and not the doing uh scott willis chimed in hello scott why do we all choose to like and follow this dumb sport which one should we switch to instead I don't have time to think of a new sport. We're just going to have to suffer with football. That's it. Okay. We just continue to suffer. Yeah, exactly. At least we suffer together. Exactly. You've all committed to this. What about this one from Snooner Gunner on the Discord? He says, how concerned should we be with our set pieces from a defensive point of view? This is now the third match in a row where we've conceded goals to set pieces. Not the only time this season. Nicholas Jover has been really impressive from an attacking stance in set pieces. But should a different approach be taken to defending them? Yeah, interesting question. I mean, it's funny. We we spent the whole podcast talking about the attack, right? But I saw this uh, tweet from Dan 
Kennett, who I think is a Liverpool fan, but also a professional data analyst. Wow, what and he those? said, <laughs> that's what an intro. And he said, um, one goal from 6XG, 11 big chances and 61 shots in attack. But defence is nearly as big a story for Arsenal. Six goals conceded from just over 3XG and only 10 shots on target. Mm. I mean, it is interesting that these, um, that sort of both penalty boxes, our efficiency is kind of plummeted concurrently, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, it's a bad time, as we said last week, for attacking and defending form to go off the cliff. Yeah. Um, set pieces, suddenly we look vulnerable, haven't been very good. Mm-hmm. I mean, set pieces have arguably carried us through the first half of the season from an attacking perspective as well. Without yeah. set pieces, you dread to think where we would be. Um, but yeah, it does seem to have been trickier of late. Have we, we faced some teams who've got some pretty good delivery, I would say. You know, we faced Trent Alexander-Arnold twice. We faced James Ward-Prowse in that run. Um, that's yeah. my main outtake, actually, a bit like you on their first goal. I look at it more and sort of like, look, that's how important delivery and execution is. Exactly, yeah. Set-piece delivery is, is just so important and ours has not been good enough from an attacking perspective. And I think you're right to say that the set-pieces, um, they did carry us a bit or they offset some of the, the open play weaknesses that we have. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've done that thing where I've sort of picked questions that you've sort of answered. I, I, what about this one? Cartoon Steve Bold. Okay. Guardiola and Klopp are blessed with world-class finishers. Don't we know it? but have also fitted a team around them. Do you think Arteta would do the same? Or do you think he'd always favour a player like Gabriel Jesus, who fits into the system he wants to play? I think if you have a player who is capable of finishing at a higher level than, than most other players in the Premier League, you would prioritise to some extent that talent. Mm-hmm. That seems obvious to me. Whatever system you play, whatever collective ideal you have about goal scoring being shared around, which, you know, I have to say I share. I think it's a good idea. The more players who can score goals for your team, the better. But if you have a player who absolutely demands you get the ball to him in areas that maybe you don't usually play in, you do it. I think he would. If he had that player, I think you'd be mad not to play to the strengths of that player. That doesn't mean you only play to his strengths. It means that you play in a way with the other talent in your team to get the best out of that guy. You know, I think there's this idea that if you have a focal point striker, that then you become too reliant on him. And that can happen. You know, that can happen. But it's much more of a... It's much more of a team game, I think, these days... There are players in this side who are capable of scoring goals and creating goals. And that doesn't go away just because you sign a a good striker. So I think if he did have that player, we would probably modify the way we play. But, Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's speculation at this point because we don't have him. Yeah, and probably are not going to. Probably are not going to. Um, I don't know. The other questions that we have are all about like, how do we score a goal again? What do we do during the break to 
you know, fix the problem that we have. So in the final throes of this podcast, the podcast that we are capable of finishing, what is your solution for Arsenal's finishing? It's an easy question, James. Yeah, thanks, man. Yeah. Um, I <laughs> think... What is the solution? I don't know, Andrew. Mm. I, I, I honestly don't know. Part of me is like, you know, guess, part of me wants to be like, is there someone in that coaching staff who really understands that position? who really understands the art of finishing and goal scoring. I know that Mikel Arteta was praised for some of the work he did with Raheem Sterling uh, in his time at Man City. I mean, I would say if you look at Raheem Sterling, he's still a pretty erratic finisher. Uh, you know, part of me wants to be like, listen, I saw Wrighty sat in his box looking pretty unhappy during the game yesterday. Get him in for a seminar. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. like, I, I know it sounds simplistic, but there is an art to goal scoring. It's, it is a case of being in the right place at the right time. But then there's so much else mm. that goes into putting that ball in the net. And I think there's a reason people say it's the most difficult thing to do in football. And I think, I don't think we should absolve ourselves of responsibility in those moments. I think we need to find a way to get better at it. Yeah. Um, and that is part of the challenge for Arteta in the next fortnight. I think it's a sort of opportune moment for kind of not quite back to the drawing board, but sort of to really interrogate our attacking play and be like, yes, we're making chances. Are they the right caliber of chances? What are the areas we're producing them in? Now, how can we be more efficient? They're just going to have to, mm. you know, pour over it and find solutions. But I don't have a straightforward answer. No, do I don't. You? No, I don't think there is one. It's a it's a very very obvious problem, without a really obvious solution. You know, I know people will be screaming, "Oh, we'll buy a striker!" You know, but we've talked about that. I think he's just got to kind of wipe the slate clean and say, "Look, this is what we've done in the first half of the season. Let's have some warm weather training, some." bonding time together and all the rest of it. And now let's go again. Let's just sort of, you know, get people invigorated and, and get them fired up again. Because regardless of our shortcomings, regardless of what we might need in the squad, I do think we've got players who can and have kicked the ball between the posts and under the bar and over the line and sometimes into the back of the net. I think they can do it. And I think there's a sort of psychological roadblock at this moment in time. So let's go a bit fucking Mad Max, get in a giant truck and blast through that roadblock while playing a heavy metal guitar on the front, swinging back and forward like a mad cunt. How about that? Sure. Through the deserts of Dubai. Yes, let's do it. All right. Uh, yeah, I think, I, mean, that's, I don't think there's any more to say than that, Andrew. I think you've summed it up. All right. Well, look, we had better leave it there. We'll get this podcast out for you guys to listen to. There is a two-week break now, of course, before we play Crystal Palace. We'll try and do our best to keep you entertained over on Patreon as well. Uh, regular Arscast uh, schedule will continue. For now, though, take it easy, folks, and we will catch you on the next one. Bye-bye. Hold up. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.